Good day everyone, my name is Mohammed Nareed Hassan and today we're going to talk about the Enron scandal from beginning to the end. I will be talking about the Enron scandal where it all started, try to make it as simple as possible, how a company with a stock price of $90 around the early 2000 and with the following year, the stock prices plummeted to less than 50 cents. Now to put it into some context. There will always be financial fraud within any industry. However, the magnitude of the size of Enron and the amount of fraud that took place was unheard of during that time. Especially a company ranked America's fifth largest company at that time. When the company was apparently booming, quotation mark, apparently, many of Americans trusted Enron and put a lot of their life savings in Enron stock. A lot of employees also did the same and a lot of finance Analysts and managers also put their funds within Enron stock. As there was a famous saying, it was too big to fail, meaning that the company is so big it can't fail. For instance, um, in our generation, Amazon and Apple could be considered too big to fail. We can never see them going bankrupt, but you never know. Never put all your eggs in one basket. Just a piece of advice. How it all started in 1985. After federal deregulation of natural gas pipelines, Enron was born from the merger of Houston Natural Gas and Internor. In the process of this merger, Enron incurred a massive debt and as a result of deregulation, no longer had exclusive rights to its pipeline. In order to survive, the company had to come up with a new and innovative business strategy to generate profit and cash flow. Kenneth Lay, the CEO, hired McKenzie and co-consultants to assist its developing in Enron's business strategy. It assigned a young consultant named Jeffrey Skilling to the engagement. Now Jeffrey Skilling is our main protagonist within this story. Skilling, who had a background in banking and asset and liability management, proposed a revolutionary solution to Enron's credit, cash and profit woes in the gas pipeline business. He created what is called a gas bank in which Enron would buy gas from a network of suppliers and sell it to a network of consumers, contractually guaranteeing both the supply and the price, charging fees for the transaction and assuming the associated risks. Thanks to scaling, the company created both a new product and a new paradigm for the industry, the energy derivative. Hence, there was a new division in the 1990 called Enron Finance Corp and hired scaling to run it. Under Skilling's leadership, Enron Finance Corp soon dominated the market for natural gas contracts with its market power and Enron could predict future prices with great accuracy, thereby guaranteeing superior profits. Part 2 of the story Skilling began to change the corporate culture of Enron to match the company's transformed image as a trading business. He set out on a quest to hire the best and brightest traders, recruiting associates from the top MBA schools, scaling rewarded production with merit-based bonuses that had no cap, permitted traders to eat what they killed. This is a foreshadowing to what's to come within the work culture, where it became a dog-eat-dog world, construct to their performance of workers over the prior six months and rate them on a five-point scale, with the top 5% designated as superior and the bottom 15% labeled as needs improvement. Can you just imagine if this happened 
at 2020, it would be completely crazy. But this was the norm at Enron during that time. Therefore, it caused a one endless episode of corporate survivor in which a policy nicknamed as Rank and Yank had employees give one, uh, one another an annual ratings with the bottom 15% being fired. These types of toxic work culture could have been one of the biggest reasons of employee being pressured to inflate the prices and profits to benefit their own life. Now, one of Skilling's earliest hires in 1990 was Andrew Fasto, a 29-year-old Kellogg MBA who had been working on leveraged buyouts and other complicated deals at Continental Illinois Bank. Fasto was promoted to CFO in 1998. As Skilling's oversaw trading operations, Fasto oversaw its finance. As Enron's reputation with the outside world grew, the internal culture apparently began to take a darker tone. Scaling instituted the Performance Review Committee, PRC, which became known as the harshest employee ranking system in the country. It was known as the 360-degree review, based on values of Enron, respect, integrity, communication, and excellence. Very ironic if I don't say it so myself. However, associates came to feel the only real performance measure was the number of profits that could be produced. In order to achieve top ratings, everyone in the organization became instantly motivated to, de to do deals and post earnings. Part 3. The Build-Up The US economy during the 1990s was experiencing the longest bull market in its history. A bull market is when the stock prices are increasing for a long period of time. New investment opportunities were opening up everywhere, including in markets in energy futures. Wall Street demanded double-digit growth from practically every venture, and Enron was determined to deliver. In 1996, Skilling became Enron's COO. He convinced Lay the gas bank model could be applied to the market for electricity energy as well. Skilling and Lay sold the concept out to the heads of power companies and to energy regulators. The company became a major political player in the United States, lobbying for deregulation of electric utilities. In 1997, Enron acquired electric utility company Portland General Electric Corp for about $2 billion. I would also like to highlight this part of the deregulation because it played a major part of the scandal. I hope that the government would take more notice of these deregulations of within industries. I must admit that regulation is not very well for the capitalism market, but when you have so much deregulation, you don't actually know what who is regulating what and what is regulating who. So I think it's very important for our political leaders to be very aware of what they are deregulating because if this deregulation never happened, the scandal wouldn't be as huge as it was. Back to the article. By the end of the year, Skilling had developed a division by then known as the Enron Capital and Trade Resources into the nation's largest wholesaler, buyer and seller of natural gas and electricity. Revenue grew by 7 billion from 2 billion and the number of employees in the division skyrocketed to more than 2,000 from 200. Using the same concept that had been so successful with the gas bank, they were ready to create a market for anything that anyone was willing to trade. Futures, contracts in coal, paper, steel, water, and even the weather. Perhaps 
Enron's most exciting development in the eyes of the financial world was the creation of Enron Online EOL in October 1998. EOL, an electronic commodity trading website, was significant for at least two reasons. First, Enron was a counterparty to every transaction conducted in, on the platform traders received extremely valuable information regarding the long and short parties to each trade, as well as products prices in real time. Now really think about that. They were the middlemen of the transaction, but they were the middlemen for the wholesaler and the customer. So they take a cut from the wholesaler and the customer. So it was a very, very strange idea, but they thought it was a good idea at that time, but I can't believe they actually went through this. It was a horrible idea from the beginning, but I guess they were so indulged in their greed. They just didn't care. They just wanted to make more deals and deals. Doesn't matter how risky it was, just they wanted just money, money, money. But it was all short term gain. And I think that's one of the biggest aspects of Elon why it failed. Nevertheless, the second reason why it was significant, because given that Enron was either a buyer or a seller in every transaction, credit risk management was crucial and Enron's credit was the cornerstone that gave the energy community the confidence. The EOL provided a safe environment where EOL became an overnight success, handling over $335 billion in online commodity trades. In 2000. In January 2000, Enron announced an ambitious plan to build a high speed broadband and tele telecommunication network to trade network capacity, bandwidth, and in the same way it traded electricity or natural gas. This is another ridiculous idea. I don't know how they ever thought that they can actually quantify the internet in a way that is tradable. I don't know what type of research they did, but they thought the high-speed broadband telecommunication is, it was worth trading, the actual internet itself. It seems kind of ludicrous, but they did this. I just don't know what type of research they did, what type of market research they did, but they just poured money. They just dumped money and just blew the money, I guess. And with these deals, they never expected any profit. Like they never had any profit of these deals, but they counted it as profit. And the person who d did the deal would get millions of dollars. It's just crazy. Real, real, real crazy talk. Nonetheless, in July of that year, Enron and Blockbuster announced a deal to provide a video on demand to customers throughout the world via high speed internet lines. As Enron poured hundreds of millions of dollars into broadband with very little in return, Wall Street rewarded the strategy with much as $40 on the stock price, a factor that would have been discounted later when the broadband bubble busted. In the August 2000, Enron stock hit an all-time high of $90.56. Now think about this, in the early 2000s, there wasn't that internet infrastructure where the video on demand in the internet was viable option. And also they predicted there would be hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue from Blockbuster, but in the future, but they recorded the future gains into present gains. It's just baffling to me, but it is what it is, I guess. All right, now we're going to move to the role of mark to market accounting. 
Enron incorporated a mark-to-market accounting for the energy trading business in the mid-1990s and used it into an unprecedented scale for its trading transaction. Under mark-to-market rules, whenever companies have outstanding energy-related or other derivative contracts, either assets or liabilities, on their balance sheets at the end of a particular quarter, they must adjust them to a fair market value, booking unrealized gains or losses to the income statement of the period. Now, a difficulty with application of these rules in accounting for long-term future contracts in commodities such as gas is that there are often no quoted price upon which is base valuation. Companies having these types of derivative instruments are free to develop their own use of discretionary valuation models based on their assumption and methods. Now, this is where Sarbanes and Oxley Act of 2002 would have came very useful, but this act was implemented after a number of accounting scandals in the early 2000s. I'll be making another podcast based on the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. Nevertheless, the Financial Accounting Standard Board, FASP, Emerging Issues Task Force has debated the subject of how to value and disclose energy-related contracts for several years. It has been able to conclude only that a one-size-fits-all approach will not work and that to require companies to disclose all assumption estimates underlying earnings would produce disclosure that were so voluminous they would be of little value. Now, mind you, this article was written at 2002, so there's there has been a lot of changes since then. So anyways, therefore, a company such as Enron, under continuous pressure to beat earnings estimates, it is possible the valuation estimates might have considerably overstated earnings. Furthermore, unrealized trading gains accounted for slightly more than half of the company's 1.41 billion reported pre-tax profit of 4,000. Could even imagine $700 million worth of revenue that was estimated gains. So it's not, it hasn't happened yet, but it's just estimated. Wow, this is just crazy. (sighs) Anyways, back to the story. Now you might be wondering, when does mark-to-market accounting make sense or where could it be applied? And is it benefiting to the overall economy? I'll make another episode solely based on mark-to-market accounting since since it's a whole nother deep dive into accounting practice. So I'll leave it for another podcast. Alrighty, on to the next part. Early 2000s. Enron's competitive advantage as well as its huge profit margins had begun to erode. By the end of 2000, each new market entrance success squeezed Enron's profit margin. It ran with an increasing leverage, thus becoming more like a hedge fund than a trading company. Meanwhile, energy prices began to fall in the first quarter of 2001, and the world economy headed into a recession, thus dampening the energy market volatility and reducing the opportunity for the large, rapid trading gains that had formerly made Enron's so profitable. Deals, particularly within the finance division, were done at a fast pace without much respect to whether they adjusted with the strategic goal 
of the company or whether they complied with the company's risk management policies. As one knowledgeable Enron employee put it, good deal versus bad deal didn't matter. If it had a positive net present value NPV, it could get it done. Sometimes positive NPV didn't even matter in the name of strategic significance. Enron's foundation were developing cracks and scaling house paper of built on the stilts of their trust had begun to crumble. So you might be wondering, what is the net present value? It is the value of all future cash flow, positive or negative, over the entire life of an investment discounted to the present. So you can think of a net present value as similar to the mark-to-market accounting. And we'll talk more about this in the later episode of what net present value entails and the market-to-market, uh, mark-to-market entails. I hope you are still being able to follow all along and I hope that I could explain it as clearly as I can because now we're going to go in a very complex situation. In order to satisfy the Moody's and Standard um, and Post credit rating agencies, Enron had to make sure the company's leverage ratios were within acceptable range. Now leverage results from using borrowed capital as a funding source when investing to expand the firm's asset base and generate returns on its risk capital. What is leverage ratios? Leverage ratios are used to determine the relative level of debt load that a business has incurred. These ratios compare the total debt obligation to either the assets or equity of the business. A high ratio can indicate that a business may incur a higher level of debt than it can reasonably expect it to service with the ongoing cash flow. So you can think of it as a, imagine a bank loan. So the bank loan is going to see, do you have any other debt that you have to pay? What is your income? Can you pay it within a time frame? So this is what a leverage ratio is basically within a company. To lower the company's debt ratio, reducing hard assets and while earning Increasing paper profits served to increase Enron's return on assets and reduce to its debt to total assets ratio, making the company more attractive to credit rating agencies and investors. Now, this is so crazy right now. This is like, if this happened in this day and age, you would you'd get sued real hard by the investors. And they did get sued, but I'm just saying it's just the penalties right now is more severe than before because you are manipulating the balance sheet. You are manipulating your numbers and you're making it show that you have high net profit and low and not not much debt. And obviously investors are gonna look at your balance sheet, your profit and income statement, and they can say, wow, this is a very amazing company. And I I want to invest in this company because I, I expect a high return seeing these numbers. So they are very manipulative in this balance sheet and it's just crazy. I can't just, this, this, this aspect is crazy. Everything is just nuts, really. Anyways, back to the main topic. Enron used a special purpose entities. Now, and special purpose entities, this is another complex part of accounting, to access capital or hedge risk. Now, by using SPEEs, such as limited partnerships with outside parties, a company is permitted to increase leverage and ROA without having to report debt on its balance sheet. Now, this is still happening, I think, with some other businesses. 
I will need to do more research and give you a full rundown of the 2020s who's doing these type of practices. Nonetheless, this was done in a large scale. So they used a lot of SPE. Normally, like a company would have one or two, maybe, but this is, we might be talking in the hundreds. Um, so the companies contributes hard assets and related debt to an SPE in exchange for an interest. The SPE then borrows large sums of money from a financial institution to purchase assets or conduct other businesses with, without the debt or assets showing up on the company's financial statements. The company can also sell the leveraged assets to the SPE and book a profit to avoid classification of the SPE as a subsidiary. Therefore, forcing the entity to include the SPE financial position and results to operation in its financial statements. FASP guidelines require that only 3% of the SPE be owned by an outsider investor. All this information might be quite confusing for a person who is not into accounting industry. The simplified version of what was going on was that Enron used SPE to borrow money and it did not show in the financial statements. And that borrowed money then transferred to Enron and they counted as a profit. Now, obviously, this was a complete scam, but they got away with this for quite a while until everything exploded on their face. So what is more surprising, many big banks such as JP Morgan, Citibank, and so on could not foresee the catastrophe. So even like investment bankers, everyone was fooled within the industry. Under Fasto's leadership, who became the CEO, CFO as mentioned before, Enron took the use of SPE to new heights of complexity, capitalizing them with not only a variety of hard assets and liabilities, but extremely complex derivatives financial instruments, its own restricted stock, right to acquire its stock, and related liabilities. Now, as its financial dealings became more complicated, the company apparently also used SPE to park, in quotation, park, troubled assets that were falling in value, such as certain overseas energy facilities, the broadband operation or stock in companies that had been spun off to the public. Transferring these assets to SPE meant their losses would be kept off Enron's books. This is also another crazy de development. Imagine Microsoft, one of the assets was falling in value heavily, but then they transferred that asset to another company, which would show in the SPE's financial statement, but not the Microsoft financial statements. So, and if this was a contagiously happened in Microsoft, you can imagine the loss would need to be recognized somehow or some way. I will give another simple example, since this can be very confusing, even a person who is aware of financial statements. Imagine John had an asset worth $100 and this asset became $10. This is a $90 loss on the asset which affects investors and lending companies away from him. Therefore, he moved the assets to Ben. He borrows money to buy another asset with $100, so nothing actually changes. This is absolute madness. Considering we are in 2020, this can be seemed 
how would that even be possible? But it was a very sad time for accounting. And Arthur Anderson was blinded by its greediness too. But you can imagine if a situation, for instance, you get paid $1 million for auditing and $10 million for consulting. So there was definitely a conflict of interest because Arthur Anderson was earning 10 times more in consulting fees than auditing fees. And Arthur Anderson, because of that reason, didn't want to speak out because if they lost out in the auditing, they will lose out in the consulting department. And remember, Arthur Anderson was a top five, the big five back then, accounting firms. So it was just such a disappointment, basically, it's just a real disappointment. And now because of that situation with Arthur Anderson and its conflict of interest, there's a part of Sox that actually corrected that issue of this dilemma. And I'll get this talked about in the later podcast. To compensate the partnership investors for the downside risk. So now we're talking about the compensation of investors. So how they get the investors within Enron. The potential losses that may incur in a particular investment position was ta- is taken. For example, the downside risk for holding a treasury bill is quite small. However, Enron had a huge downside risk, but they deceived nearly everyone. So they were showing investors what they were investing in had a huge profit gain, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. Enron promised issuance of additional shares of its stock. As the value of the assets in these partnerships fell, Enron began to incur larger and larger obligations to issue its own stock later down the road. Compounding the problem toward the end was a perpetualist fall in the value of Enron stock. Enron conducted business through thousands of SPEs, thousands, can you just imagine, thousands. The most controversial of these were LJM Cayman LP and LJM2 Co-Investment LP, run by Fasto himself from 1999 through July 2001. And these entities paid Fasto more than 30 million in management fees far more than his annual salary now this is wow this is just another part where it's mind-blowing think about you work for company a and you own some part of company b and company b hires you and pays you management consulting fees now you can see where it is just damning for everyone except himself Anyways, um, in turn, the LJM partnership invested in another group of SPEs known as the Raptor Vehicle, where it was designed in part to hedge on Enron's investment in a bankrupt broadband company, RhythmNet Connection. As a part of capitalization of the Raptors entities, Enron issued a common stock in exchange for note receivables of $1.2 billion. Enron increased note receivables and shareholders' equity to reflect the transaction 
which appears to violate generally accepted accounting principles. Additionally, Enron failed to consolidate the LJM and Raptors SPEs into their financial statements. When subsequent information revealed, they should have been consolidated, which means consolidation of financial statements wherein all subsidiary report under the umbrella of a parent company. On to the next arc. So the house of cards comes crumbling down. In February 2001, Lay announced his retirement and named Skilling as president of CEO of Enron. In March, Enron and Blockbuster announced the cancellation of their video-on-demand deal by the time the stock had fallen to mid-60s. Now, think about that. The deal fell off, but they counted all the profit that they were going to make with Blockbuster. So he was in serious trouble. Nevertheless, throughout the spring and summer, risky deals Enron had made in underperforming investment of various kinds began, began to unravel causing it to suffer a huge cash shortfall. So one time or another, the cash is not coming in. They're just spending a lot of money, but the cash is not coming in. And this is where it was the doomsday for them, I guess. Senior management, which had been voting with its feet since August 2000, selling Enron stock in the bull market, continued to exit and collectively hundreds of millions of dollars richer for the experience. On August 14, just six months after being named as CEO, Skilling himself resigned, citing personal reasons. The stock price slipped below $40 that week and expect for a brief recovery in early October. After the sale of Portland General continued, it slid to below $30 a share. So that's just in six months. Can you just imagine? 96 or 95 all the way to $30. That's going to be intense. Anyways, back to the topic. As you can see, the speed of the decline, everyone within the company knew that things were going to get hectic. Also in August, in an internal memo, memo by Tulay, a company of the vice president, Sharon Watkins, described her reservations about the lack of disclosure of the substance of the related party transaction with the SPE run by Faster. She concluded the memo by stating her fear that the company might implode under a series of accounting scandals. Lay notified the company's attorneys, Vincent and Elkins, as well as the audit partner at Enron's auditing firm, Arthur and Anderson LLP, so the matter could be investigated further. The proverbial ship of Enron had struck and the iceberg would eventually sink in. On October 16, Enron announced its first quarterly loss in more than four years after taking charges of $1 billion on poorly performing businesses. The company terminated the Raptor hedging arrangement, in which, if they had continued, would have resulted in issuing over 58 million Enron shares to offset the company's private equity losses severely diluting earnings. It's 
also disclosed the reversal of a 1.2 billion entry to assets and equities it had made as a result of dealing with these arrangements. It was this disclose that got the SEC's attention. So the SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission. So on October 17, the company announced it had changed plan administrators for its employees 401k pension plan, thus by locking their investment for a period of 30 days and preventing workers from selling their Enron stock. This was so upsetting to read, but it did happen. On October 22, Enron announced the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission and is a large independent agency of the United States federal government that was created following the stock market's crash in the 1920s to protect investors and the national banking system. SEC was looking into the related party transactions between Enron and the partnership owned by Pasto, who was fired two days later. On November 8, Enron announced a restatement of its financial statements back to 1997 to reflect consolidation of the SPEs it had omitted, as well as to book Anderson's recommendation adjustment from those years, which the company had previously deemed immaterial. And also this restatement resulted in another 591 million in losses over the four years, as well as additional 628 in liabilities as of the end of 2000. The equity markets immediately reacted to this restatement, driving the stock prices to less than $10 a share. One analyst reported that the company had burned through $5 billion in cash in 50 days. $5 billion in cash in 50 days is just another crazy number back in 2000, obviously. A merger agreement with smaller cross town competitor Dinergy was announced on November 9th but rescinded by Dinergy on November 28 on the basis of Enron's lack of full disclosure of its off-balance sheet debt, downgrading Enron's rating to the junk status. On November 30, the stock closed at an astonishing 26 cents a share. The company filed for bankruptcy protection on December 2nd and finally the fiasco was over. After the disaster was known everywhere, Arthur and Anderson went bankrupt. Lay dies from heart attack while waiting for the trial. Skilling was jailed and was out in February 2019 and he plans to open another energy company and he has a brilliant solution. I don't know how he's going to get into the business anymore. I don't think anyone trusts him anymore. And he affected so many people's lives. I can't believe he only had such a short term in jail. Anyway, so what can we take away from this? This whole fiasco? Well, we can. It tells us how important internal controls are to an organization and how important it is to be independent within those organizations. How toxic work culture can be the demise of a company. How greed can eat a human's life. How, how conflict of interest by Arthur and Anderson played a huge role 
and the trust of the investors were diminished. Another question you might be wondering is who is responsible? On one hand, one can say it's the government for such deregulations. Another one can say the Enron maybe it was just the owners who made these accounting concept as deceitful as they were. Or even Arthur Anderson, their lack of empathy and the fraud and the dignity was lost with all these scandals. There is still a lot to unpack. I'll be making another episode based on the aftermath, what could have been done, what was the root cause and how have been the accounting governing body has tried to change the landscape of these deceptive practices. And this comes down to many factors, but obviously we, we will need to think about all these aspects to change for the better. Okay, so now we're done with the podcast and I'd like to give some reference. So you can find this article in The Rise and Fall of Enron When a Company Looks Too Good to be True, and it usually is, by C. William Thompson. I'll put the link on the description and also uh, Rank and Fire by John Greenwald, content.time.com. And to email me or find me, everything's on the description. Um, um, You can easily find me on LinkedIn and shoot me up an email. I'm happy to answer any of your questions. If you'd also like to talk about your experiences as an accountant or if you are interested in an accountant, just shoot me an email and I'll be more happy to respond. And I hope you have a good day. Enjoy your time and see you. Bye.